Well, I'm pretty sure Jonathan just called me fat. So I'm not real sure what to do with all of that. Well, Summit family, it is great to be with you here this weekend. I'm excited uh, for the opportunity that we have to open up God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts in the ninth chapter. And we're going to continue in our brief little hiatus from the book of Romans to learn a little bit about Paul, the author of the book of Romans, and more specifically, We're going to look at the incredible encounter that Paul has with Jesus on his way to Damascus, a moment that forever changed the trajectory of Paul's life, a moment where he would go from being a staunch opponent of Christianity to a passionate follower of Jesus. And so for just a few moments this morning together, I want us to really focus in on Paul's conversion. This conversion experience that he had. Now, I would imagine that for many of you, even hearing the words or thinking about religious conversion may conjure up some negative connotations, but I started thinking about it, even asked my family about it, about all the ways in which we try to convert people to a particular way of thinking, a particular way of viewing things, some serious, some not so much, right? For the next year, for example, we know that we're going to be inundated with political ads and political agendas where people are going to try to persuade us and convert us to a particular political party or to a particular view on any number of societal issues. We know that people try to convert you in their exercise regimens. You know that's true if you've ever interacted with someone who goes to CrossFit because I swear to you, it's a cult. And the people are passionate about it. People are trying to convert you and their food preferences all the time. They'll tell you that Popeye's is better than Chick-fil-A, which it's clearly not. That Coke is better than Pepsi, which also is clearly not. That unsweet tea is better than sweet tea, and that's just gross. And maybe even the worst of all, I can't fathom this, but Dunkin' Donuts cannot hand a candle, hold a candle to Krispy Kreme. All right? It's not even close, right? All Krispy Kreme lovers say amen to that. You go to a Krispy Kreme and they've got the hot and now sign on. That's just a little taste of heaven. But if you really want your life changed, and this is all free, if you really want your life changed, a hot glazed donut is amazing, but you got to figure out when they're serving the hot blueberry cake donuts. And they've just run that bad boy through the glazer, it'll change your life, right? <laughs> People try to convert you in this. I think of all the ways that Pastor J.D. stands up here in non-spiritual ways, tries to convert you to things that he holds true. So if you've been around the summit for any amount of time, you know this to be true. Is it cats or dogs? It's dogs. Who's the greatest actor of all time? Nicholas Cage. We know, we know deep down while J.D. says that he's for all the schools in the triangle, we know that deep down his blood runs a little bit of a light shade of blue, Right? And as an NC State grad man, that hurts me. And it particularly hurts me this morning after that beat down that we got last night, right? So I'm kind of thankful that he's not here this morning and I don't have to listen to his insufferable talk about that, right? But in all seriousness, when we talk about biblical conversion, it undoubtedly makes some of us uneasy, especially in a culture when making exclusive truth claims often gets you stuck being labeled as intolerant, a religious bigot, or narrow-minded. But what I want us to understand this morning is that biblical conversion, rightly understood, is an integral part of our faith. 
And through the book of Romans, Paul has actually told us why. For we know that without conversion, we can't really know God because our sins separate us from God. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that without conversion, we can't really be forgiven for our sins. For Paul would also tell us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the cost of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So without conversions, we can't know God, we can't be forgiven of our sins, and without conversion, we can't experience eternal life. For Paul Paul would further say in Romans 10 verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right, church? So the opposite of that must also be true. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, the entirety of scripture teaches us you can't be saved. So if what we find is that conversion is massively important to the Christian faith. It's a necessary part of our faith. And so with that in mind, let me give you a working definition of what conversion is. If you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write this down. Simply put, conversion is turning away from sin. So it's repenting. It's acknowledging that when you try to fill your life with all the things other than God, when you try to build your identity apart from God, that is sin. And so when conversion happens, you're acknowledging, Lord, I've sought to build my identity apart from you, so I'm turning away from that, I'm confessing that to you, and I'm turning towards you, and that is faith. So genuine conversion is repentance and faith. And so let's look at our passage together, starting in verse 1, and we're going to see Paul's miraculous conversion experience there on the road to Damascus. Now, before I read this, I want to say two things. One... When the book of Acts was written by Luke, in Acts chapter 9, you have Luke's account of Paul's conversion. But Paul would also tell of his own conversion two other times in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22 and then in Acts chapter 26. And so we're going to kind of base ourselves in Acts chapter 9, but we're going to pull a few things out of Paul's own narrative from Acts 22 and Acts 26 as we go along the way. The other thing that you're going to notice in the scripture here, the word is going to be Saul and not Paul. This is Saul's, Saul is Paul's name prior to his conversion. I'm going to say Paul all morning unless I'm reading the scripture, okay? Because if not, I'm just going to get it all jacked up. All right, so here we go. Acts chapter 9, let's look together at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. And hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So this is the word of the Lord. And in just a moment, I want us to pray together, and I want us to ask God to speak to our hearts this morning. But before we do, I want to make one really important thing clear. When we read Paul's conversion account there on the road to Damascus, we realize, man, this is a spectacular event. It's a miraculous event. I mean, can you just imagine just for a second that you're walking on the road with him, and all of a sudden a light greater than the noonday sun comes upon you and out of that light you hear a voice and you realize it startles you and you realize that as you fall to the ground that you're encountering the resurrected leader of the very movement that you're seeking to destroy. I mean, that's a phenomenal story. It's a miraculous story. But as we read about conversion here this morning, what I wanna make sure we're all aware of is that as miraculous as Paul's story is, every single time that Jesus brings somebody from death to life, that in and of itself is a miracle, regardless of how benign the events may be. So that means that when I was nine years old, sitting under the teaching of my childhood pastor, and God removed the scales from Will Taburin's eyes to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and to see the need that I had for a savior as a sinner, that is a miracle. And so if you've experienced conversion, that is a miracle as well. But what we do find when we read Paul's accounts in the scripture, what we find are some evidences, some marks that are true of every conversion experience. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore those marks because looking at those marks will be really, really important for all of us for a few reasons. Because for some of us, we're here in this room this morning and you're, you're questioning, you're skeptical, you're trying to understand more about Christianity, about what Christianity means and whether it's worth your life. And so my prayer this morning is that you, as you understand what conversion looks like, you'll begin to understand what Christ is doing in you, that he is your only hope in this life and in the life that is to come. There are others of you here who when you think about conversion, you know there are certain things that you believe about Jesus. And my prayer for you this morning as we walk through this text is that you're gonna understand that while believing the right things about Jesus is crucially important to a robust faith, it is so much more than just believing the right things about him. And I'm, gonna pr I'm praying that this, this message will open your eyes to see that. And then lastly, I realize that there's a group of you here, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. My prayer for you this morning is that as we look at it together, man, that you are gonna see Jesus afresh and anew and your heart is gonna be stirred with great affection for him and you're gonna be reminded that we would all be reminded, man, that if God can save a person like Paul, he can save anybody. So let that burn in us an evangelistic fervor to go and make famous the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So can we pray to that end for just a moment?
Let's do that together. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I I pray in these sacred moments, these sacred minutes that we have together, Lord, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would work and move mightily. Father, I pray that it would start with me in my own heart. I pray that I would be overwhelmed by your goodness and graciousness to Paul and your goodness and graciousness to me, that it would stir in my own heart, God, deep abiding affections for you that would lead to a transformed life. And Lord, I'm praying that for every person who can hear my voice, Lord, that today would be the day, Lord, that they transfer their trust to you and walk in faith and hope in the resurrected Lord. So God, I pray that you would get me out of the way. Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people. And Lord, I pray that we, in response, would be obedient to do what you're calling us to do. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we move through the text this morning, I want to share with you five marks or five evidences from Paul's account that are true of every conversion experience. So if you're taking notes this morning, you can write these down. The first is this. The first mark of true conversion is that you realize that Jesus is pursuing you. You come to realize that Jesus is pursuing you. Now, before you get to verse 3, where you begin to see the verbal interaction between Jesus and Paul, Luke reminds us of the incredible disdain that Paul has for the Christians and for the church, right? You see, for Paul, Christians posed a threat to everything that Paul held dear. And so Paul has been giving his life to this point, his adult life to this point, up to now to thwart the movement of Christianity. And so he set his mind to do whatever it takes to exterminate the movement. And the text helps us to see the depth of his passions and the depth of his conviction. Look with me at verse one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now let me stop right there. And I want you to hold your place in your Bible, I want you to flip back one page to Acts chapter 8, because Luke says that Paul is still doing it, which means that Paul had previously been doing it. And so at the end of Acts chapter 7, you know that Stephen, one of the early believers, had just been martyred. He'd just been, um, he'd just been killed by people who were passionate about thwarting the movement of Christ. And Paul is standing there, and he's overseeing this, and he's watching this. Look at what it says in, in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and make great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. That word ravaging there, think about it like a wild animal might seek to destroy something, to ravage something. Saul is ravaging the church. In entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so you see that Paul is on a mission. He's on a mission to snuff this movement out. Look with me back at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9. So he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters. He asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul wasn't content stopping the movement in Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Damascus, which was about 135 miles away, with an extradition letter to arrest any Christians, whether men or women, and bring them back to Jerusalem to have them arrested, to be placed in jail, and many times often murdered because and killed because of their faith. Now let's keep reading in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. 
And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I want us to, make, to take a moment to make a somewhat obvious but really crucial observation about this text. And that is this. Jesus is the one who initiates the relationship with Paul. Jesus initiates with him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here's why this is so important. Because when I look at what Saul is doing and when I think about Saul's life, I realize, man, here is the most ardent opponent known in the land today of Christianity. And yet God initiates a relationship with him. And what I think Paul deserves is for Jesus to show up to Paul and to have a massive experience with him where he just kills Paul. He says, listen, if you're not for me, you're going to be against me, and I'm just going to deal away with you, but that's not what Jesus does. You see, he engages with Paul, and in that engagement, we see the grace and the mercy that Jesus shows Paul. So if anything, Paul was deserving of death for what he was doing. But how great is the love, how great is the grace, how great is the mercy towards Paul that he would pursue him even when he sought to destroy him. And so I love, I love this divine interaction that's taking place, this divine intervention where Jesus is saying to Paul, listen, I'm not going to withhold my love from you to teach you a lesson. Rather, I'm going to pour my love upon you. I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to show you my mercy. And I pray this morning that some of you will see that God is pursuing you. He's using people in your life. He's using the church. He's using circumstances, even sometimes hard circumstances, to show you the beauty and majesty of his grace and his mercy towards you. Listen, he's pursuing you to show you how great he is, to show you his great love and his great grace. But my fear is that some of you hear that and you think to yourself, Will, I'm too far gone. How is it that God can love me after what I've done? And you sit here and you are racked with guilt. The things that you have done, the ways that you have hurt people, they rack you with guilt and you feel that and you say to yourself, how is it that God could love someone like me? And I want to say to you, this conversion experience of Paul is a great reminder that no one, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. And that is such good news for us. Man, I think about this man who is persecuting Christ, and Jesus shows up to him and he says, Paul, I know you and I love you. I think of how that is the narrative all throughout the scriptures. I think about it with Peter. When Peter denied Jesus in his most intimate moment, and yet Jesus restores Peter and he brings him back and he says, Peter, I know you. I know what you have done. I know the depth of your sin. I know you and I love you. I think about it with David and Bathsheba. When I think about how here's a man who commits adultery and even murder and he says to David, David, I know you and I love you. David says, Lord, please don't cast me away from your presence. And God says, David, I won't. I'm not going to cast you away from my presence because I'm going to cast Jesus away from my presence. And I'm going to put everything on Jesus that you deserve. And I want you to know that I love you and I know you. You say, Will, you don't know my sin. You're right, I don't, but I do know my God. And there is no sin so great that the blood of Christ can't cover it. 
No sin so great. And so he is pursuing Paul, and he has pursued us, for those of us who have experienced true conversion, and for those who haven't, he's pursuing you, mercifully, graciously. But that's not all. Notice second. A second mark of true conversion is that you embrace the truth of the resurrection. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. In verse 4 we read, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now at first, Paul didn't know who was speaking to him. His, his word Lord there is not like an admission there of Jesus as the Messiah. He just knows something holy other has come upon him. And so he asks, who are you? Who are you? And Jesus responds to him. He identifies himself. He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, man, this is so beautiful to me. In that moment, Paul comes to realization that the stories that he had heard the eyewitness accounts that he was aware of, even Stephen's own testimony as he presided over his execution, they were all true. The one, this one truth of Jesus being resurrected forever changed him. You see, Paul rightly understood that if the resurrection is true, Summit family, it demands your life. Scholar N.T. Wright said it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Listen, if the resurrection is true, then it demands your life. If the resurrection isn't true, then who cares what Jesus said? Who cares what Jesus taught? Who cares how great and moral he was? If he's not resurrected from the dead, then he's just another man. And why would he be worthy of your worship? Why would he be worthy of your life? But if he is resurrected from the dead, then that is a game changer. And so if you're not a Christian and you're skeptical and you're questioning and you have really good questions on the teachings of the Bible, on important issues like creation or sexual ethics or judgment in heaven and hell and so on, here's what I wanna ask you to do. I wanna ask you, to suspend those questions just for a season and consider whether or not the resurrection is really true. Because there are things that Christians believe about the events surrounding the resurrection that would be good for you to wrestle with. Things that give us a foundation of belief and hope and understanding that Jesus is truly who he says he is. For example, we believe that the tomb of Christ is empty. We believe that it is empty. We believe that no one would have believed the teaching of the early church leaders if the tomb had in fact not been empty. We believe that the ones who stood the most to lose, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, if they had the opportunity, would have quickly produced the body from the grave. But they could not do that. And so we have to ask the question, how did the tomb get empty? It's a reasonable one that you need to give an account for. We believe as Christians that there were hundreds of eyewitness accounts, individuals like Paul who had an encounter with the resurrected one, small groups of people like the disciples, Thomas who placed his hands in Jesus's, in his side, in his hands to touch him. We believe that Jesus, according to the scripture, appeared to over 500 people at one time. Listen, the New Testament writers 
as they penned these letters and they circulated them to the churches, they were in essence, by putting that information in the Bible, were in essence saying, listen, if you want to know for yourself, go ask somebody. Here are the people who saw Jesus. Go ask questions about them, about whether they saw him, and figure out for yourself whether they actually had an experience with the resurrected Lord. Some people will say, well, gosh, probably they wanted it to be true so bad. They had put their faith and hope in him so much so it was probably just a, a hallucination that they were having. But, but you have to ask yourself the question. The scripture says that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. People don't have mass hallucination experiences where 500 people have the same hallucination. So you've got to wrestle with that question. There are all these eyewitness accounts. You have to wrestle because we believe, and the scripture tells us that all the apostles, all the, all the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, died martyrs' death. They died martyrs' death. You have to ask yourself, who is willing to, really willing to die for something that they know isn't true? Listen, most people won't die for something they know is true. Like, think about that, man, if, if I, think about what it would take for you to say, man, I'm willing to lay down my life for that, even if it's true. I mean, that's a huge step. Can you imagine all of these people being willing to say, I'm going to lay down my life for something I know isn't true? You have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with how and why does the church expand so massively? Why does this movement take place? Why is there such change in all these people? Listen, if you're not a Christian and you're asking those questions, they're great ones. But there must, there must be a rational and historic explanation for those. And so enter into that struggle because for genuine conversion to take place, there must be belief in the historical bodily resurrection of Christ. And that's what happened with Paul. But that leads to the third mark of true conversion, and that is this. You surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. You surrender to him. From the moment that Paul encounters Jesus, everything changes. There's a complete 180. Paul no longer lived for himself, but for Christ. Everything changed. Listen to Paul's own words in Acts 22 and verse 9. He says, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said to Jesus, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And then Ananias comes to him in verse 14. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Note this, underline this, to see the righteous one, literally see him, that's Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And what did Paul do? Exactly what he was told. And the rest of the New Testament tells the story of, of his faithfulness to Christ, his sacrifice, and his ultimate willingness to die for the cause of Christ. Man, I love how Paul gets to the very end of his life. The last letter that Paul wrote is the letter of 2 Timothy. And he's writing, to, he's writing to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, he's like, hey, Timothy, the time has come for my departure. The end of my life is here. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I love what he says. He says, I fought the fight. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have accomplished everything that was set before him, and now there awaits for me in glory a crown of righteousness that I'm going to receive. And for, it's there for all who long for his appearing. Like Paul is faithful. He totally surrenders his life to Christ in every way. It wasn't just that he believed the right things about Jesus, 
but he actually trusted in him as the Lord of his life. Listen, Summit family, genuine conversion always, always, always leads to a surrendered life. True conversion will lead to complete surrender. So it's really important for us to understand that believing the right things about Jesus doesn't really save us, right? We can believe something to be true with no personal commitment or dependence involved in it. I can believe it to be true and not really be committed to that thing. For example, imagine, imagine you're standing up on a high cliff, and I hate heights, so I don't even like this illustration. All right, but imagine you're standing up on a high cliff and you lose your footing and you begin to fall off of this high cliff and you know that you are on your way, you're plummeting to your death. And as you're falling, you look and you see a really strong, massive branch that is hanging out of the side of the cliff face. And you know, you know that if you reach onto and grab hold of that branch, that that branch will save you. And it will save you from dying, it will save you from falling. What Summit Church is necessary for you to be saved? What do you have to do? What do you have to do? You have to grab hold of it, right? You have to grab hold of it. It does not matter if you think that that branch is a good branch. That branch is a strong branch. That branch could probably save me from my death. It does you no good if you believe all the right things about the branch unless you actually do what? You gotta grab on to the branch. You gotta grab hold of it. And it's only when you grab hold of it will it actually save you. So what I want us to understand, it's not the intensity of your belief of what you think or what you know. It's actually the object of what you think and know that actually saves you. It's not how much you think you believe Jesus is true. It's that have I really trusted him to be my Messiah and to be my Lord? It's only then when I've transferred my trust that I've really surrendered my life to him and I could truly be saved from my sin. Think about it this way. Julie and I, my wife, we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And I can say to you, man, I have married way over my head I mean, my wife is an incredible woman. She loves the Lord. She's selfless. She serves. She's amazing. If I came to you and I spent the next 10 minutes talking to you how great my wife was, and I said to you, man, my wife is great, and I, I just really love her. Man, I, I, I'm pretty unfaithful to her. Like, I just, I just kind of go and do my own thing. I'm not really committed to her. She's awesome, but I just kind of live my life doing my own thing. You'd look at me and say, man, that's not a marriage. That's not real commitment. It's not that you believe Julie is great. It's when you actually commit yourself to her that you're showing her the value of that wedding vow, the value of that commitment, right? It's commitment there. It's trusting in that. True conversion will always lead to a surrendered life. Now, I want you to notice that I didn't say it leads to a perfect life, but it leads to a surrendered life. You're going to stumble you're going to sin because we know that there's a constant battle that's being waged between our flesh and our spirit. And like Paul, there are going to be times in your life when you're going to do the things that you shouldn't do and you're going to not do the things that you should do. But when that happens, there's going to be things that you, there's going to be fruit of true surrender that's going to come as a part of your life that are going to give you evidence that, yes, I'm still really surrendered to Christ. Things like, I'm going to repent of that sin, and I'm going to acknowledge that that sin is ultimately against God. I'm going to confess that sin, because I'm going to know that if I confess that sin, the moment I confess it, the sin begins to lose its power over me, and I want to put that sin to death in my life. 
And as I repent of that sin and as I confess that sin, my affections for Christ begin to change. And as my affections for Christ begin to change, you know what happens after that? My behaviors begin to change. And my behaviors begin to look more and more like Christ. And so, no, you're not going to lead a perfect life, but you can lead a surrendered life. And a surrendered life is a life modeled with repentance and confession. It's a life modeled with being in the body. It's a life modeled with behaviors that are consistent with who we know to be true of Christ. So true conversion is always accompanied with a surrendered life, which leads to the fourth mark, and that is this, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, Ananias comes to Paul and he tells him, listen, not only will you receive sight, but you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have time to really unpack the beauty and majesty of the Holy Spirit and how all of this works together, but here's what you need to know. The very power that you need to lead a surrendered life to Christ, God says, I'm going to give to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we read the word of God and we read how the gospel changes us, we realize that that's the Spirit's work in us. We realize now through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be everything that God is calling us to be. So that means that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we can bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to him. He replaced Saul's cruel hatred with love, his restless, aggressive spirit with peace, his rough, hard-nosed treatment of people with gentleness, his pride with, with humility. And so who I want you to be Jesus says, I will give you the power through the Holy Spirit to become that. And not only that, everything that I call you to do, I will also give you the power to do that as well. You think about all that God called Paul to do here in his conversion, to go and be a missionary to the Gentiles, to stand before kings, to be a blessing to the Jewish people. You read all throughout Paul's letters and all throughout the book of Acts, that's precisely what God did in him. So everything God was calling him to do, God enabled him to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's also true of us when we give our lives to him. So that means that he'll give us the winsomeness we need to be an effective witness or the courage to stand against injustices or the grace to forgive those who really hurt us and wronged us, the patience to love the people in our lives who are really hard to love, to give us the endurance that we need to do our work as unto the Lord, to give us the wisdom we need to parent our children. All of these things that God is calling us to do, he says, I'm through the Holy Spirit gonna give you the power to do. And so Summit family, God will never call you to do something that he won't also, through the Holy Spirit, give you the power to accomplish. And so true mark of conversion is that the Holy Spirit fills you and allows you to become who God wants you to be and to do what God calls you to do, which leads to the fifth mark, and that is this, that you engage in the mission of God. In Acts chapter 26, in Paul's own words, we see Paul's commissioning to the Gentiles, He says that you're going to be sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Now, some of you might hear that and say, well, Will, isn't Paul's calling a little bit unique? Well, in some way, yes. Paul was an apostle. He was called as a missionary and so forth to the Gentiles. But in another sense, we know from Paul's own writings that we are called to engage in the mission of God. We're called to be disciples who go and make disciples. Paul would say it this way in his second letter to the church at Corinth. He would say in chapter 5, verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal for us. And so one of the values that we have as a church is that we sit every member. And so you've heard us say that the question is no longer if you are called, it's only where and how you are called. So that means that God will call some of us to pick up our lives and go be missionaries, to take the name of Jesus Christ to people who don't have access to the gospel. It means God's going to call some of you to pick up your life and your family and go partner with one of our church plants, to partner with Derek Delane in Nashville or Billy Judge in Pittsburgh. But for others of you, it's going to mean that you're going to be faithful to do what God has called you to do right here in Briar Creek in the Research Triangle, to be a faithful witness in your workplace, to be a faithful witness in your home, to be a faithful witness in your neighborhood, that you're engaging in the mission that God is calling us to. A true sign of conversion is that you leverage your life for the advancing of the kingdom. And so I want to say to you in closing, here is why all of this is so important. We can't know God, we can't have our sins forgiven, and we can't have eternal life apart from conversion. And Paul's experience gives us a helpful lens to ask ourselves this question. Has conversion taken place in my life? Are these marks true of me? Do I see that Jesus has pursued me with his grace and with his love? Have I embraced the truth of the resurrection? Am I surrendering my life to him? Am I being filled with his spirit? Am I engaging in his mission? Maybe for some of you, there's a realization that there's some areas of your life that you need to confess to the Lord and to acknowledge, God, I know this doesn't align and you need to trust him. But maybe for others of you, perhaps today, today is the day that God is gently and tenderly and graciously taking the scales off of your eyes and letting you see him for who he is. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you just to pray with me. So will you close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment? If you're a follower of Jesus here, then just for a moment, I want you to thank God for what he's doing in your life. I want you to thank God for him saving a man like Paul and let that be a reminder to you that there is no one out of the reach of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and let that stir in you a passion for evangelism, a passion to tell the good news of Jesus who's brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Perhaps for others of you, maybe you need to ask yourself the question, Lord, am I believing the right things about you, but I've never really surrendered to you? I've never really trusted you with my life. I've never really grabbed hold of you. I've never really transferred my trust to you. Maybe today is that day where you say, Lord, I trust you. Let me say to you, listen, even the demons believe that Jesus is the Messiah resurrected from the grave. Have you transferred your trust to you?
to him. And then for those who are searching, I want to say to you that God is pursuing you and he longs to have a relationship with you. And if it's your desire today to begin trusting Jesus, to repent of your sins and to turn to God, then I want to invite you just to pray this simple prayer with me. Just silently in your heart and know that there's nothing, there's nothing magical about praying this prayer. It's, it's actually more just a reflection of your heart posture towards God. So if it's your desire to trust him, then just pray this silently to him. Lord, I know and I admit to you that I am a sinner. I have sought to find my identity apart from you. And I know that the wages of my sin, the consequence of my sin is death. But I believe that you were crucified, buried, and resurrected, proving to be the Son of God. And I'm committing my life to you to go wherever you call me to go and to do whatever you call me to do. And I'm trusting in you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that is the prayer that you prayed this morning, in just a moment, our prayer team is going to be down front. And as we are commissioned to go, I want to invite you to come and share that with someone. Let us pray with you. Let us help you take a next step in your journey with Christ. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for saving Paul. Lord, we thank you for saving us. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be different as a result. Lord, let us be obedient to do what you've called us to do. For your name and for your glory alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm gonna invite our prayer teams to come on up and I'm gonna invite you just to stand with me. And as I mentioned before, if you've made a decision to trust Christ and we'd love nothing more than just to pray with you about that, or maybe there's something that you're just wrestling with or struggling with, and we can pray with you for that as well. Whatever it is God is doing, we wanna invite you just to come and let us enter into that with you. But now as we prepare to go, as we prepare to go and be the faithful ambassadors of Christ that he has called us to be, Let me remind you of this doxology from Jude chapter 24, or Jude verse 24 and verse 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Summit family, you are sent. Thank you.